Thanks, Kathy. Great to have uh, that part of the Bible open in front of you. If you can keep it open, uh, that would be extremely helpful. Uh, we're going to continue our series that we've been doing for this last term in Luke's account of Jesus' life. And as we do it today, I, I want us to think a little bit about yourself and God. As, uh, as I was looking through pictures last night, I, ca- I came across this one and I, I couldn't resist it. It says, am I good enough? Now, for some of us sitting here today, this has never been your question. You know you're good enough. You're thankful that you are good enough. Uh, except I don't know there are too many people who are like that. I, I think this morning there are probably a whole bunch of us who might feel inadequate in various spheres of our life, feel that perhaps we're not on the top of our game and wonder, not just am I good enough as a husband, as a wife, as a parent, as an employee, as a brother, as a sister, but what about when it comes to God? Am I good enough? And it kind of provokes some other questions as we think about God and you and and God and me. What, What will a holy God do with me? If I meet a holy God, who truly knows me, what what will he do with me? How will God deal with, how will God treat my uncleanness in my heart? Can God help my unsolvable issues? And the, the baseline that we all want to know is, would God want me? If he really knew me, would he want me? So I'm going to pray this morning and ask that God might help us. Help us to hear his answers to that question in the person of his son, Jesus. And given the disruption we've had this morning, I'm going to suspect that God really wants to say some things to us. So I'm going to pray that we'd have open hearts. Lord God, you are present, and you know us, and you see us as we truly are. Father, many of us will have a great mound of things, weighing us down, pulling, pushing us, causing us to question our worth, causing us to wonder about who you are and how you would greet us. Father, by your Holy Spirit now, I ask that you might speak to us even as you spoke to those people we'll meet in this passage. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we start off, uh, as Bev brought us the reading, uh, we start off in chapter 5, verse 1. It says, One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. And you might ask, where is the lake of Gennesaret? I haven't heard of that before. So I want to tell tell us geographically where we are. We're in the north. Uh, We're up the top of Israel. Uh, Jerusalem's down here. Judea's here, Samaria. And then Galilee is up the top here. We're up the top. More specifically... It's probable that we're at a place called Gennesaret, which might give us a reason for why it's called Lake Gennesaret. Uh, It's also known as the Sea of Galilee, Lake Galilee. It's the the same place. You you haven't met a magical new place you've never heard of in the the Bible before. That's where we are. We're in the north of Israel, and we're by the water, and you can call it Galilee or Gennesaret or whatever you would like, sea, lake, puddle, whatever. We're in the north in the Lake where Jesus has been before. And we see that Jesus has been doing things and he has a 
growing reputation and chaos is around him. Have a look at verse 2. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. So I don't know when the last time you were in a big crowd was. Um, I went to, uh, to see the thunder punished by the sixes a little while ago at the SCG, and, uh, and everybody was crowding in to their allocated seats that no one can take. Anyway, they were. They were crowding in, right? They've got to get in to find their seats. So they, they were, and, and you kind of want to hang on to your kids in that moment and, and all of that. Now, Jesus has this growing reputation. So there's a crowd that have come. He's done healings. He's done teaching. And now, in order to maintain a little bit of order, he borrows a boat. And he borrows a boat from a guy called Simon. And lest you think that Simon, it just was Simon's lucky day and his boat got chosen, we met Simon just before where we actually saw that Jesus healed his mother-in-law. And so Simon and Jesus have engaged before. You can see that at chapter 4, uh, verses 38 and following. Simon and Jesus have, have, have had an encounter before. And so Simon, Jesus goes up to Simon, Simon, do you mind if I grab your boat? No problems. The fishermen are just there. He grabs the boat. Now, I don't know if you've ever been fishing on a boat. Anyone? Some of you have. When you get out on the water, you can hear what people are saying on land very clearly. And there are some wonderful acoustic things that happen. And so Jesus has this big crowd, and I assume they're all pushing in on him. And he's, you know, he doesn't have a ring of policemen to keep them back. And so what he decides to do was, I'll get in the water, then I can come back from you guys and give you the address that you need to hear. And the acoustic properties of the water help him, and so he's able to be safe and heard by the crowd. And it's worth noting, I think this is the first or one of many examples of field preaching, by which I mean he's not in a synagogue. And he's not in a synagogue because it's not a Sabbath day. How do I know it's not a Sabbath day? What are the fishermen doing? They're fishing and right now they're cleaning their nets. Now, the Jews are super finicky about not working on the Sabbath so if you've got fishermen who are cleaning their nets, you can know it's not a Sabbath. So here's Jesus teaching outside to the great unwashed on the edge of the lake. Fantastic scene. And then something extraordinary happens. And, and you know it well, but, but let, let's have a look at it again and consider what's going on. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and we haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. That's pretty extraordinary information, isn't it? I think it's worth, worth noting that for Simon, he was very happy to have Jesus use the boat for religious reasons. Right? You're the religious teacher. Take the boat, turn it into a pulpit, no problems. But when he says, take it out and go fishing, all of a sudden, Simon goes, you know what, Jesus? This is back into my territory now. The boat has, re has reverted from a pulpit back into the business place. And I've got to tell you, dusty carpenter boy from Nazareth, we aren't going to catch any fish in the middle of the day right now. On top of that, I've just packed everything up and I'll be blowed if I'm going to wet my nets again. Okay? 
More than that, I know there's no fish out there because I worked all last night and even worse, everybody here knows that I'm the local fisherman. If I go out with you and drop my nets over in broad daylight, everybody's watching and I'm going to look like an idiot when I pull them back up again, empty of fish. That's the, I'm sure that was all happening in his head. Not in the scripture, is it? But, but what, is, what does he say? Well, he says, actually, Jesus, I'm going to do it because you say so. And when he does it, when he, I mean, it's an incredibly faith-filled thing, yet because you say so, I will let down the nets. Luke taught us last week that a miracle is an instance of bi- <laughs> that is not business as usual. Remember, the universe has a business as usual. Something out of the ordinary happened right here in Peter's workplace. I just want to say to those of you who have a workplace, do you, are you happy for Jesus to be Lord in this building? And if you told him he's not welcome in your fishing boat Monday through Friday? Are you with me? We leave here, we go to our workplace, and I know how my workplace works. I know what it means to be the boss, to do the things that I do in my workplace. And Jesus, if you can sit over there and leave this to me, I've got this. We need to live an integrated life. We need to be living new life for and with Jesus. At any rate, Peter has invited Jesus into the boat and he's gone fishing for Jesus and this is not business as usual. Something extraordinary happens, the nets go over and fish that should not be there are there. So many, it says, that the nets began to break. So they call in the second boat and the second boat, well, the reality and the significance starts to be sinking in. You see, that's this little pun, you see. The boats, it says, start sinking. Now, I don't know, the boats aren't near the water line when they start, right? No fisherman has a boat that's about to sink. But you put so much fish in it that now there's water lapping over the sides of the boat, something truly extraordinary has happened, unprecedented. And it leads Peter to an unusual conclusion. Simon, as he's called here, starts to believe that he's in danger. He believes that he's in danger. He says, have a look with me in verse 8. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. Go away from me, Lord. All of a sudden, it's become dangerous for Peter to be near Jesus. See, the teaching of Jesus had taught him that Jesus is significant and that he has authority. The miracles of Jesus, including his mother-in-law, had shown him that Jesus was powerful. And now... Because of the proximity of Jesus, the closeness of Jesus, it's convicted him of his sin. He says, you need to get away from me, Jesus. Your power, your holiness, your authority, it exposes me. And I'm a sinful man and I can't be near you. Now, brothers and sisters, this is what it's like to come in contact with power with authority, with the awesome presence of God. We don't wander in humbly. We fall in awe in our feet and say, get away from me. And I want you to see how Jesus responds. How does Jesus respond to Peter going, you're dangerous to me? Have a look at what he says. Verse 10. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. Isn't that extraordinary? Don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. 
From now on, you will fish for people. And I want you to see that in these two sentences, as Jesus helps his friend who is prostrated on his floor in front of Jesus, helps him up and says, don't be afraid. I've got a job for you. You are not my enemy. You are chosen by me and I have a task for you. And I think we hear two scriptures that we know end end, here, right here. Don't be afraid is for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God loves you. You do not need to be afraid of him. And Matthew 28, which says, Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There are two, two, two favorite passages right here. You are loved and you are given a purpose. Get up and join me, is the invitation from Jesus. Now, straight after this story, Luke continues with another one. And it involves a, a person, a, a man who has leprosy. Now, leprosy is not something that we know of really at all by first hand. It's a bacterial skin disease that starts to affect the body in all sorts of terrible ways, such that you can end up looking like this. And one of the reasons you look like this, not only do lesions come out on your hand, but you start, it affects the nervous system. And so you start to lose the ability to be able to feel. And so a lot of the time, it's not just that fingers and hands and arms are injured or drop off through leprosy, but because you don't know where they are anymore because you can't feel them. And so they might get closed in a door. You might accidentally put your hand on the stove and you won't know to pull it off because there's no feeling there. So being burnt and maimed and injured, the body becomes more and more disfigured. It's a terrible disease that leads to paralysis and blindness. So here's a man who has this disease and there is no hope for him. There is no hope for him. And what does he do? Have a look at this. While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came to him who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Because I want you to see the posture of begging. Peter fell to his knees and said, Lord, you need to get away from me. I'm a sinful man. Guys, I've got to tell you, we used to, we used to kneel for the Lord's Supper. Yeah? We don't do that so much here. We're going to take this later. One of the reasons I used to love it is there's no pride in kneeling. You can't be proud on your knees. And this man with leprosy, I won't do it, but he threw himself on his face before Jesus. He begged him. There is no earthly hope other than Jesus for this man. And so he begged him. I want to ask you, church, do you know this feeling? Do you know what it is to get to the end of yourself and go, God, I'm out. I've got nothing. Please have mercy. I've been there. So what does God do? What does he do? Well, in the person of his son, Jesus, he moves towards the man in pain. He moves towards him and he says, I am willing. If you are willing, you could make me clean. And the question is, is he? And Jesus says, I am willing. And Jesus reaches out and touches the unclean man. And he tells him of his restoration, be clean. Be clean. In uh, 2 Peter 3, 9, we're told that God is willing. He's holding back the day of judgment that all may come to repentance. God is willing. And it says in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. 
God is willing and he can make us clean. And I want you to see something amazing that happens here. In the the Old Testament, if you touch someone who is unclean, this is what happens. Notice the flow. If an unclean person touches a clean person, then they become unclean. They become unclean in the sight of God. They have to go and purify themselves. And what I want you to see here, something truly extraordinary happens. Jesus, the only truly clean person ever who never sinned, he reaches out and touches the leper. And healing and wholeness and cleansing flows to him. Do you see? It flows to him. And guys, if we had seen that, did you see those poor mitts of that, that, that leper? When it says you're healed of leprosy, it is a physical thing, a transformative thing that happens. And, and he must have been just absolutely overjoyed to know that healing flowed from Jesus to the unclean man. And then there's a weird bit where he says, go and bear witness to the priest. Did you hear that bit? And you're like, what's going on there? There were sacrifices for cleansing from a skin disease. They're in Leviticus 14. And they're supposed to go and do a whole process of cleansing. And it says, go and do the process of cleansing as a witness to the priest. And you kind of go, what's that about? So you can be cleansed from a skin disease, but no one has been cleansed from leprosy for more than 700 years in Israel. So if they go to the priest and say, I've been cleansed from leprosy, tell me the things I have to do, and they go through the process, and then the priests go, yep, you're officially cleansed from leprosy, then all of a sudden, all the priests know, for the first time in more than 700 years, there is someone in the power and the spirit of Elisha in Israel. That's Jesus. And so something extraordinary is happening. Leprosy is being reversed in Israel. How amazing. And so Jesus' reputation and his power keeps growing. And what does he do? Have a look with me at verses 15 and following. Yet the news about him spread all the more, so that the crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. I would go. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Guys, he had a growing reputation. That makes sense. What might surprise us? I said last week that Jesus was in the custom of going to the synagogue. Do you remember that? I said, church, we should go to church. Why? Because the Son of God did. This week, I want you to see that the only Son of the Father made time in all of this chaos and busyness to find stillness with his Father. Do you see that? So last week, I said we should go to church because Jesus went to church. And this week, I want to tell you to have your quiet time because... Jesus had a quiet time. And you go, I can't possibly fit it in. And Jesus goes, well, I've got three years until I die as the incarnate son of God, and I managed to fit in some time with my father. There's also growing scrutiny. Have a look at verse 17. One day Jesus was teaching and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were sitting there and they'd come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem. In other words, there's a posture of on the knees, there's a posture of on your face and now there's a posture of folded armed religious people. We've come to check you out, Jesus. We want to see if you're kosher. 
what will happen? You guys have heard me do my illustration with the first aid kit. You know when you've got uh, your, uh, your uh, first aid training? We work through Dr. ABC, do you know it? Danger response, airway, breathing, circulation. What's D these says? Defibrillation. I exposed my ignorance last time by saying it was deadly bleed, which it was when I did it last time because we didn't have this newfangled technology when I did my... Anyway, the idea is what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to treat the biggest problem first. Biggest problem first. I want you to see Jesus' first aid care for the man in this story. Have a look with me at verse 18. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. What did, the, what did the friends of the paralyzed man want, everybody? Great. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles in the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. Digging, moving tiles, moving dirt, hole in the roof. That, that, that's what's going on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the friend, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? I'll go quickly here, but it's incredible that this paralyzed man has four friends. And I said to the guys' Bible study on Tuesday night, I said, do you have four friends who would carry you to Jesus? Every time I've done this story this week, I want to observe, when I said to people, what do you observe here? People said, there's a hole in the roof of the house. And I just want to observe back to us, church, in the middle of Oran Park, that we have mortgage madness. We are worried about the hole in the roof of this guy's house. Seriously, people are talking to me about this, right? And it's not the end of the world, but it does show something about where our hearts are at, right? Good gracious, what about the guy who had the hole in the... There's a little mirror here from the Word of God. Just, I'm just... Maybe we need to think about what the most stunning thing here is, okay? And, and it's a failed healing, isn't it? Friend, your sins are forgiven. What are you going to do about his real problem, Jesus? And I want you to see Jesus sees his real problem because you can be an unforgiven person with working arms and legs and you'll go to eternity away from God. And you can be a paralytic with forgiven sins and you will run and not grow weary in the presence of the Lord in all eternity. So he does treat the first thing first. Your sins are forgiven. It's a failed healing on the first count. And so what does Jesus do? He says these beautiful things. He says, friend, your sins are forgiven. It's a personal address. He, he cares for a friend. And then he declares the new status. The verdict of judgment day is now brought forward. Your sins are forgiven. It's a statement of what is. And then he makes a God claim by saying they're forgiven here and now by Jesus. 1 John 3 1 says that the love of God means that we're known as children of God. And 1 John 5.24 says that what he has forgiven is forgiven today. You can know the future verdict today. Your sins are forgiven, but it caused an outcry. And now the danger's for Jesus, isn't it? Because what do you do with blasphemers, everybody? 
You didn't say that with enough conviction. You're supposed to rise up as a mob and say, stone them. Don't do that, please. But it's dangerous for Jesus now. And I want you to see what he does. Jesus knows their hearts, doesn't he? He looks and he says, I know your hearts. And then he poses them a trick question. And you guys know this. You've heard this before. Jesus says, well, here's a mat, right? The the paralytic is, is there. And Jesus says to them, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he says, which is the easier one to do? And every time I do this with people, we get tricked by this question. And I'm going to do the illustration I used before. Okay, um, Mr. Frankie, do you drive today? What color is your car? Blue. Thank you very much. Um, I want you to know, guys that I have the power to make this TV levitate this high and I have the power to change Ian's car to be red. Now, which is easier to say, television, levitate up to here, or Ian, your car is now red, which is easier to say? Tell me. The car is red. Why is it easier to say the car is red? Because you can't see it. And Jesus says... You can't see the disk drive in heaven that has your sins recorded on it. If I tell you it's forgiven, not only is it impossible for normal humans to say that, but you can't see it. And here's something impossible. Here is a paralyzed man. He can't walk. And so what I'm going to do for you is I'm going to link the visible impossible thing with the invisible impossible thing and show you I have authority to do this by doing this. And so Jesus says, take your mat, get up, and walk. And I want to tell you guys, I believe every single person missed the point. It was an amazing miracle. A paralytic got up and took his mat out. That's extraordinary, right? But Jesus didn't do it for a show. He did it to prove a point. And the point was, I can forgive sins. Do you see? And what should have happened at the end wasn't just praising God. It should have been a line of people saying, delete my hard drive. I want to be forgiven of my sin too. Do you see? So they all missed it. Everybody went home going, that was an awesome show. And that's a shame. Hey, uh, here's a car. Nice enough car, unless you're a Holden person, I guess. But here it is, sitting on the side, looking beautiful, right? Until this happens, right? Okay. Now, who likes parking inspectors? Put your hand up. Very good. I see for podcast land, no. Oh, there's one person. All right. Uh, Lorraine, maybe used to be one? No, I'm not sure. Okay, anyway. Generally, we don't like parking inspectors. Why? Because they charge us money for something that we don't really want to pay for. Levi was a tax collector. He was probably a tax collector for Herod, who was a tax collector for the Romans, and he was a guy who took money from his countrymen. And basically what they would say is, here's your booth. You're supposed to take taxes on behalf of uh, of Herod. Go for it. Any money that you can make on top of what Herod wants you to charge, you get to keep for yourself. And so what it meant was, this was personal income tax. In other words, the taxes were his personal income, okay? And so we see it in verses 27 and following. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax collector's booth. Uh, Incidentally, this guy Levi gets another name too. Does anyone know what his name is? Matthew. He's going to be the guy who'll write one of the other 
Gospels, which is pretty cool, isn't it? This is how we meet him as a smarmy tax collector. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. How extraordinary. There's a personal invitation. Follow me. Response from Levi? Sounds like a good idea. No one's ever asked me to do anything other than take taxes. I'm with this guy. And so he shows incredible personal commitment because he gets up and he goes. And what does he do next? Something extraordinary. Have a look at verses 29 and following. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large number of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But some of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to the disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? This is a fair question. Nobody likes them. I can't come up with a decent set of people that we would despise as much as tax collectors. Politicians. Uh, We should pray for our politicians, shouldn't we? His first response is, I got saved. I'm with Jesus. What do I need to do next? My next thing is, I'm going to give the message of new life. I can't keep that into myself. Hey, brethren, fellow tax collectors, that's my, my tribe, fellow tax collectors, come and hang out with me. I met the man Jesus, and I want you to meet the man Jesus. And so he invites them, and friends are a great place to start because they see the change in your life. I found this wonderful quote this week. It says, a converted man, forgive me, ladies, it's from a century old. A converted person will not wish to go to heaven alone. Guys, we should think on this. A truly converted person who meets the forgiveness, the the joy, the love, the welcome of Jesus shouldn't want to go on their own. Jesus answered the cynics. He said, what are you doing hanging out with this rabble, this bunch of losers? And he said, Jesus answered, it's not the healthy you need a doctor, but the sick. And I want you to see Jesus use some Hebraic air quotes in the next bit. You ready? Watch me carefully. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He says, there actually is no category of righteous. You're all sinful, but some of you think you're not. And I didn't come to call you. I didn't come to convince you. I came to pick the people up who are on their knees and welcome them into my family. So how does God find you today? How does he find you? Does he find you afraid of him? What will God do if he was to meet with me? I have put my arms around the the shoulders of people and led them into this building saying the, the roof shouldn't fall on you. Who've never been in a church before. And they're genuinely afraid. And I want you to hear the welcome of Jesus. Don't be afraid. Maybe you're unclean. Deep in your heart and you know it. I want you to meet the touch of Jesus that can forgive any sin. Maybe you're unfixable today. Maybe you're unforgivable. I want you to meet the cross of Jesus where full forgiveness and new life is found. Maybe you're unloved. Maybe you're in a group of one. In which case, I want you to meet the welcome of Jesus 
When he says to Levi, come, follow me. This morning, you might be in the boat of thinking, in the boat. (laughs) You might be uh, in the category of people who need to know Jesus better. I'm running a course starting this Tuesday night, which will give you an opportunity to know Jesus better. Come meet him with me. Tuesday night, 7.30. Come finding the Son of God. Some of you, however, know Jesus, and I want to encourage you to go fishing. We've got some new new, um, uh, 316441 cards at the back, which encourage you to pray for those who don't know Jesus yet, a friend, a next-door neighbour, someone you're yet to meet, a family member. Grab a new card from the back. Start praying. They're there. They're brand new. Join me in going fishing because that's what you're called to. That's what I'm called to. We started by saying, am I good enough for God? And the answer is, I hope you don't think you are. Because if you're not, you're meeting Jesus exactly who you need. Jesus' answer to them is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, you are beautifully bigger than all the things that would stop us coming. We thank you for the cross where our sins and their punishment was paid. We thank you for the resurrection that fills that payment with hope and life. And I pray today that those who need to know for the first time that they are free, that they would know so today. I pray for those who have known us for many years, that you would fill us up, that we might be ready to go fishing with you. But we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a pretty good time to have the Lord's Supper. It'll point us to the place where all of that forgiveness flows from. From Jesus' spilt blood and his broken body. And today, I want to encourage all of you who are trusting in Jesus to partake by taking some bread and a little cup of juice as they're passed around. We have in, um, in these little, uh, little containers here um, crackers, which I believe will make them gluten-free, which is good. I want to encourage you to take heart that Jesus loves you and has done everything to welcome you. We do this with a call and response. I'm going to encourage you. Uh, I'm going to say the words in bold, and you're going to say, uh, sorry, I'm going to say the words in light, you're going to say the words in bold. Uh, Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. On the night before he died, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after the meal, he took the cup, and again giving thanks, he gave it to his disciples, saying, Drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray these words together. Father, we thank you for these gifts of your creation and pray that we who eat and drink them in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, believing our Saviour's word, may be partakers of his body and blood. Amen. As we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do this until he returns. Well, come, let us eat and drink in remembrance that Christ died for us and feed on him in our hearts by faith with
thanksgiving. So I'm going to invite some people to come and help me um, distribute uh, the juice and uh, the bread. And if you can hang on to it until we're ready to uh, eat it together. Lorraine, are you happy to come? Jeff, Ian, Daniel? Thanks, guys.